Welcome to the Hoops and Huddle podcast. I am Malika and he is... Brandon with the rubric. Thank you. Thank you for having having this, pulling this together, Malika. And thank you for being here. I am really excited. We are both extremely excited to welcome Teresa Runstetler to our podcast. Um, we And she's here to discuss with us her new really, really... Um, great book, Black Ball, Karen Abdul-Jabbar, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Spencer Haywood, and the generations that saved the soul of the NBA. To me, I just say Black Ball and historians exactly know what it is. Um, <laughs> so I don't even have to read the rest of the title, but I'm excited. Like, like one we just talked about a minute ago with Black Ball, to me, it's like, a, this is right up my alley like i know brandon you 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 know started listening to this and you were like uh yeah this is definitely malika's uh yeah i, I devoured it like every word and because there's so much detail in here the way you do your re- conduct your research it's um very thorough with its details um so i want to thank you for writing it it's definitely in my library of historic one of my favorite historical hoop books um that was written um because the 70s is this blank um whole like if you look at doc sports documentaries like um the espn um very detailed documentary when it looks at i look at it all so often and then off the top of my head i'm you know basketball love story and you know when the 70s it talked about is like this drug haven and that's when you read books that's what you hear you talk you know they bring up the david thompsons and 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 different the same players over and over again what about everybody else in the league what about dr j what about you know the coming of dr j what about all of that so um welcome and um welcome teresa to our show Thanks so much for having me. It's always a pleasure to hear good things about something worked hard on and just hope that it would resonate with folks. Absolutely. Um, it's resonated. <laughs> <laughs> it's resonated because, um, and Brandon, let me, let you go ahead and get a word in before I start gushing and going into Oh, no, questions. I just wanted to say, I, I appreciate you putting the work into that as well. Uh, telling these stories, uh, a lot of times about these legends, especially in this day and age when, uh, what is it, the NBA's average fan is somewhere between 18 and 24. Oh, I mean, now you're really making me feel seen, old. They haven't even seen Michael Jordan play, not even in his last year. Uh, it's like, he's not a real thing to a lot of folks very much. So like, I never really saw Wilt play, et cetera. So given the lens to how a lot of these guys back then broke a much, what I consider to be a much bigger barrier than what exists today. It's far more inclusive today. It's far more, do we have our problems? Absolutely. Uh, but what those men and women had to go through back then uh, is quite telling. So hearing your, hearing what you chronicled in your perspective is is solid. So I appreciate it. So that's why Thank I'm excited. Thank you so much. Well, you know, uh, I have to say, I've, I teach students who are in the 18 to 24 age bracket. And a few years ago, I was teaching a class on 
the revolt of the black athlete in the late 60s, which was the series of boycotts and protests of black athletes as part of the black power movement, really trying to push back against racism within the sports industry and how they were being used as tools of American empire, essentially on the world stage. Um, and so I always talk about Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and my students didn't know who he was. And it just lit a dagger into my heart. I was like, no, there's no way you cannot know this iconic man. Um, so it's, it's interesting that now it's even Michael Jordan who's becoming hazy for folks in terms of what they remember of the NBA. Right, that's right. Yeah, that's right. With Mike, but in Michael Jordan, it's like he's a, he's the sneaker guy. And I'm a Michael Jordan person. And so for me, it's like very bizarre. You know what I mean? I'm like, I, I can't even relate to not knowing who he is. But I wanted to dive right in when you, you know, like one of the things that stuck out to me before we even get to, because I somehow I tracked down um, NBA. I read something from that time, NBA and cocaine, nothing to snort at. Somehow I tracked down a reprint, there was something in the New York Times. Like I think it printed in a lot of different papers at that time. And who was it a doozy? I was like the reporting back then, no wonder the, you know, like the image of the NBA was what it was because the reporting was awful. I mean, so, so many anonymous sources in that yes. uh, article and it was reprinted all across the country. It was carried on news shows when the NBA mm -hmm. wasn't even really carried on national television that often. Um, so that became, for a lot of folks, their first introduction, especially if they weren't Hoops fans, their first introduction to this increasingly Black league on the national stage. And it, uh, you know, even among historians, when I started working on this book, they would always point to that Chris Cobbs article from the LA Times and basically say, mm -hmm. oh, but what's drugs? And I, I felt like, have you read that article? Have you looked at, you know, it was awful. Uh, looked at the sourcing and looked yeah. at it in the context of what was going on in the late 1970s and all of these fears about crime and um, mm -hmm. young uh, Black men in Black Very neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. and, and, and really tried to, I guess, like, look under the hood of the car and and check and see whether or not this was truth versus um a racialized narrative about the league um so for me it i mean when i looked at it i was like oh come on i mean not to say and uh, full disclosure i'm not saying that nobody in the nba was using cocaine but the way no, that they made the league were. look like it was a haven of you know, reprobate, reprobate drug addict. Yep. You know, yeah, that's the thing. Yeah. Um, I like it's like was drug use in the NBA any worse than what was going on at large? Um, you had the Pablo Escobar and the Colombian cartels, you know, cocaine flowing into um, the United States from Miami, from different ports around the country. Like it was a problem at large in the United States, but 
the the uh, NBA was this beacon of, you know, crime, you know, like, you know, black men, you know, like coming into our own in terms of asserting them being being black and proud, like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who um, was the reluctant superstar. And, you know, especially coming from when you had the Chuck Coopers and um, the Maurice Stokes, you know, like that was a tragic story. And we'll get to that in oh a minute. Yeah. Um, and it's the 1970s was, you couldn't have the 80s without the 70s. The 70s set the stage in the 80s when Magic and Larry came in and lit that fire plug, it, that the stage was set before they got there though. And what I love about your book is it lays out beautifully how the stage was set for them by the forebearers before them. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, Maurice Stokes though, uh, we, we could kick off right there. It's When I read about his story and I go through, I go through people in history here and there. I just put up a post about this, the Maurice Stokes story with him being, you know, like a, the first black player to be, to get on an all NBA team. Um, like he was second team, but it was like his talent level seemed like it was like first team level. Um, he was a three time all-star. He was a rookie of the year. He was a superstar of that time. Like he was, that talent and then when he had that injury but no insurance um just tragic how you know he did all that re rehabilitation and he just never can get it fully back and thankfully for his teammates he was able to you know get medical care because of he was ra raising the funds but Maurice Stokes and this, you know, what, you know, when you first learned about this story, with you being a historian, probably a long time ago, like, what did you, what were your impressions of that? Well, for me, it was a, a symptom of the disempowerment of the players during mm -hmm. Marie Stokes's generation. So um, the fact that he was not even, I mean, they didn't have medical personnel. Mm -hmm. uh, following the team around smelling the games, they just kind of propped him up again and sent him going and i mean admittedly folks didn't know as much about head injuries as they do now mm -hmm. however mm -hmm. it was very clear even to his teammates at the time that this was a guy who probably shouldn't get on the plane you know if you have mm -hmm. air pressure changes he was already looking wobbly. He wasn't right. You know, he was vomiting and all of these other things. And so that plane flight where nobody really did anything to protect him and they just let him go on his way as if he was, you know, just a player only and not a human being who needed care, um, to me speaks to the fact that the players at that time uh, treated as as individuals whose bodies really mattered other than to produce a spectacle on the court um so you know i think that as you said the fact that the league did nothing to really help him and that his career was essentially over 
and his life as he knew it mm -hmm. was essentially over at that point. But the fact that also the players were able to come together every year to have that uh, fundraising effort yeah. on behalf of Maurice Stokes and were able to... And the caliber um, of players, the Will Chamberlains, the Bill Russells, like you had the Kings of Kings coming out to support him every year. Yeah, and I, I think that that really showed the fact that the players understood their own vulnerability too. It could have easily been them. Mm -hmm. if, if, you know, um, and only by the grace of God not the ones experiencing that um, and I think that they they understood their lack of power and vulnerability as players in the league and were able to come together to you know through their own mutual aid essentially help him um, to not get completely lost to this this the system that uh, you know chewed players up and spit them out um, and so I think mm -hmm. that event became a kind of catalyst for folks in the league to say, well, we actually need some labor protections. We need mm -hmm. some health care. We need a pension. We really need to start to fight for those things. Um, so when Oscar Robertson became the head of the NBPA, um, he really made it his mission to turn the NBPA into a kind of more activist oriented union that would include not just the stars of the NBA, but the last guy coming off the bench, you know, the mm -hmm. journeyman players, and to make sure that they stood together as a unified force in order to have some form of leverage against the team owners. So for me, Maurice Stokes's story is at the intersection of all of those developments um in the nba and it really shows on the one hand the disempowerment of the players but then also their ability to come together and make change so what would you what would you see as the most pivotal point where owners teams leadership call it training staff whatever the case may be when they started to see more value in the players because what you're speaking to is an era where players in general were not valued. Like we talk about Wilt, we talk about the Big O, we talk about all these legendary players. They still weren't valued very much. We think they're great, but their own teams didn't. The very fact that these guys could rally and come together and ownership still not pitch in. Because today, if LeBron, let's say KD, Damian Lillard, uh, even James Harden, if they stood up and said, hey, we need y'all to support this guy over here that's number 13 on the bench on this random team. Team team front offices are jumping in saying, here's some dollars, here's some resources, etc." So I'm wondering, when do you, what, what do you think were the pivotal moments where it was that shift where teams said, oh crap, these guys are valuable. We need to treat them as more than just labor assets. Would you yeah. say the Oscar Robinson case was that that was that when everything kind of changed? I, and even before then, uh, I think mm -hmm. it was a series of things. So mm -hmm. I think the establishment of the ABA, the mm -hmm. American Basketball Association in 1967, 
even though, okay, we often think of the ABA and we think about it very nostalgically as the Black League, you know, this league that was uh, the scrappy underdog versus the NBA. But if you really look at who the movers and shakers were in terms of the owners of those teams, these were entrepreneurs, white entrepreneurs who wanted in on the potential to make huge money in the sport of basketball. Mm -hmm. They were forecasting, speculating on the fact that basketball would become a growing sports property. So in spite of the fact that um, you know, they had really no intention of, you know, creating a black It became a black league because black players were very valuable in the talent war versus the NBA. So one of the things that the ABA needed was they needed good players to put on the floor to create an entertaining game so that they could create a fan base or lure fans away from the NBA. So that competition for players was really the moment when you start to see things that were relics of, you know, an earlier generation, the informal racial quota that existed across the league where teams could only have a certain number of black players on their roster. Um, you know, it was an unwritten rule that maintained a form of controlled integration. Um, so there wasn't a flood of black players into the league. Once the ABA, you know, started courting players, started going to the Eastern League, started going to HBCUs, started going to places where the NBA didn't typically recruit, all of a sudden, black players were in this position of leverage that they had never mm -hmm. had before. Mm -hmm. That was also happening at the same time that you had a series of antitrust cases. So the first one that I think was really pivotal was the Connie Hawkins case. Yes. Connie Hawkins, you know, again, one of the greatest players that almost never made it to the NBA, not because of his talent, but because of the fact that he was unjustly accused of being part of a, a game fixing scandal. The NBA, so first of all, he gets kicked out of the NCAA, you know, is blacklisted in the NCAA. He's blacklisted in the NBA. Even though there were a few teams that were interested at some point in attempting to draft him, the NBA's top brass said, oh no, you are, we're not even going to touch him with a 10-foot pole. But they didn't actually do any due diligence to make, you know, to check, to see whether or not he had actually done anything criminal, which he had never even been charged with anything, let alone convicted of anything. Um, he won his, uh, well, they settled um, his case. And not only did he win a money settlement, a substantial settlement, but he also was able to finally get into the NBA. Um, and I think that that sort of signaled to folks that the NBA was vulnerable on the terrain of antitrust law. And so you have somebody like Spencer Haywood coming in next. He was the ABA under their new hardship clause, which stated that 
uh, a player could bypass the four-year rule. Um, just to back up a little bit, the four-year rule was basically a, a gentleman's agreement between the NBA and the NCAA, uh, whereby these two, you know, sports monopolies would not interfere with each other, so that the NCAA could retain its talent for four years um, and be a free farm system to the NBA. And they wanted to keep that whole system running and it still kind of runs today, although there is no more four-year rule. But the ABA realized that, hey, if we can get somebody like Spencer Haywood, who's still an underclassman, before he can actually get drafted into the NBA, then we can bypass um, you know, and get him quicker into the professional ranks. But unfortunately, the team that he ended up signing with signed him to a horrible contract, which was probably fraudulent. Um, he got into all sorts of legal. That contract was criminal. <laughs> right? <laughs> and, and he so was then, negotiated it a few times. Like I was yeah, astounded looking, reading that detail. Yeah, and and I mean, uh, of course, he goes out and he decides to hire an agent to help him. And the team owners of the Rockets were kind of like, "Why do you need a why do you need representation? Don't you trust us? Here, just sign on the dotted line, or hey, we'll provide you with a lawyer um, to be present during the signing." So they had figured out all of these ways to really undercut the labor rights of these young guys and he just didn't stand for it you know signing a contract with the seattle supersonics of the nba and lo and behold the nba says hey wait a second you just violated our four-year rule so you're not allowed to play and so he sued the nba and he ended up you know uh getting the right to play the four-year rule was was deemed a violation of the sherman antitrust act and that's why you have you know players that are able to leave the ncaa when they choose to you have players that can jump right from high school to the pros um there's no longer these arbitrary um rules preventing folks from selling their labor on a free market and so that's when the Oscar Robertson case really begins to pick up after those two earlier victories. Um, and I, I was just talking with somebody about this the other day that I think one of the reasons why the NBPA has uh, relative power in comparison to some of the other unions in professional sports was that they were able to hold off the merger of the ABA and the NBA for nearly 10 years. Uh, they were able to win successive antitrust cases against the NBA with the Oscar Robertson um, uh, settlement eventually undoing the reserve clause and bringing in a form of free agency. They were able to play these leagues off of each other. And so that was the moment of leverage, I think that you were asking about earlier. And it just sort of, it opened the door a little bit and then the players just like went right through it mm. um, and took that opportunity and used that leverage to the best of their ability to change the dynamic between themselves and the 
Uh, okay, I, I I get I I get that. That makes a lot of sense. I think that's nuance that people miss. Whereas the NFL, that leverage has never been created because there was never any competition. Well, there was a moment. So, so right. I mean, of course, the American Football League existed Correct. in the in the mid sixties. But you know what happened to them, which um, you know was so tragic, was that they pushed an antitrust waiver for the NFL. Um, and the AFL through Congress. They railroaded it through in 1966. And so there was no period of leverage for the players. You know, the merger happened and then business continued as usual and all of that opportunity for leverage, you know, slipped through their fingers. Right. Um, so I think that actually the basketball seen the writing on the wall with what happened to uh, football players and they fought to to try and keep those two leagues from merging until they got some concessions. Okay. And yeah. I don't think people understand. I don't think players um, comprehend how big that, you know, the NBA, PA, Oscar Robertson's you know, testimony and just how his strength and his fearlessness. In this case, um, like you look at NBA Today and they were able to build on that and build on that and build on that. But this case is the linchpin for where they are today. Um, I, I personally think they should have consulted with Oscar, but this new CBA, everything that comes out, every time I hear something, I'm like, who was in the room negotiating this? The owner's just like, but that's a whole nother topic for another day. Um, but I, you know, like, because he suffered for it afterwards, you had owners who did not want to see him affiliated with the league after the case was over and you had free, free agency didn't begin to 1988, but this case ushered it in and um you had owners not wanting him even related to the league in any way not a coaching job not on not a tv job not not a front office job with his talents and what he was able to do for the players you would think there would be a bevy of opportunities and there weren't well actually no not in the not in the front office or anything like that but i figured something you know like with play nothing it was just like he he was blacklist blackballed if you will absolutely after. yeah i mean that was the sort of double meaning of the title was that yeah this is you know the era when basketball becomes black but it's also the era of all sorts of blackballing political within the league um you know throughout labor fights for being criminalized um and so in some ways, the 70s was very double-edged for basketball. On the one hand, it was this uh, era of incredible, incredible change in terms of the structure of how the business worked um, and the, the players' opportunity to get their share of the profits or increasing share of the profits. But on the other hand, with all of that success, particularly from the perspective of Black players, then there, they also became hyper-visible and hyper-visibility also led to a certain level of scrutiny 
that, you know, in concert with uh, the white sports media became a way to kind of paint everybody with the same brush of criminality, mm -hmm. violence, and just uh, general uh, comments about their work ethic or lack mm -hmm. of uh, lack of morality. Yeah, drug abuse, yeah, uh, behavior, when they see one or two stand out versus all of them that were in that league, uh, it just speaks to that systemic racism that that <laughs> we've never right. seen. It's one of the reasons that I follow the NBA uh, and even the NFL, because these are two sports, two industries, not sports, industries mm -hmm. that are 70 plus percent black. There's no other industry that exists that the product itself is that black. And I, I, I can see why it, it's come this way. I can definitely see it interesting is that in the 70s the nba's top brass thought that this was a problem right they they mm -hmm. you know as early as the the early 70s they were saying oh geez like what are we going to do about the blackness of the sport there's a growing mismatch between who's on the court and who the fans are and at no point in there did they actually stop to think other than Simon Gourdine? And he says this in one of yep, his- Yeah, that was going to be my next question. Mm -hmm. Yeah. At no point do they stop and say, well, wait a second, maybe we should start trying to get more black fans into the stands. Maybe this is our entree to making the sport have a wider fan base. Mm -hmm. No, they were all up in arms about the fact that they would have a diminishing piece of the white fan base and that they would flee to other sports because of the players. And that was gonna be my next question because when you look at Simon Gordine and just him rising to deputy commissioner, we still haven't had like, you know, a black commissioner, but we have, we do have presidents of black basketball operations like in Toronto uh, with Masai Ujiri, you got uh, Michael Jordan, who's an owner um of a team um the only player to ever own a majority stake in an nba franchise um you have other front office personnel that are um black america black or of color as you look at the impact of simon gordine and i feel like he was put into a he was in the middle of a rock and a hard place where he was a black man, the league was majority black, but then he had ownership um, that did not look like him, who had people like Jack K Kent Cook in it, who we know what kind of man Jack Kent Cook was. Um, he wasn't exactly um, this bevy of um, equality. So <laughs> to put it, so with Simon, he, to me, he broke the glass ceiling so the others could walk, even though I feel like NBA still needs to go through another door, if you will, but it's come a long way from when Simon Gordine was in the league. Yeah, and it's ironic that so few folks actually know who he is. Yeah. Um, he's such a, you know, to use the phrase, hidden figure mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. NBA history. And yet at the time, he was the highest ranking black sports administrator in all of North American sports. I mean, 
and he was essentially Walter Kennedy, his the, the commissioner at that time, his mm-hmm. um, and and arguably did a lot of the work. Yes, <laughs> did a lot of the work um, of keeping, you know, <laughs> keeping the uh, the 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 New York office going and and maintaining a good relationship with the NBPA. Um, and uh, I mean, his story is it's it's a complicated one though, as you as you mentioned, he's yeah. this guy who, you know, he doesn't fit the typical profile of somebody who has a, a administrative career in sports because he wasn't a former player. He mm-hmm. was a guy who, you know, was part of a rising generation of black college. Uh, uh, educated folks who were heading into positions in corporate America. You know, he was trained as a lawyer. Uh, he acted in corporate law, antitrust law, in fact. And that was one of the reasons why Walter Kennedy found him to be such an attractive candidate, because he thought that, oh, this guy can actually help us. Um, uh, you know, solve this issue that we have with the players where mm-hmm. they're challenging our monopoly. And so he was put in this position where he himself understood uh, that he was a black man in a white man's world, mm-hmm. that he um, he was also somebody who believed that change could happen from within. Um, and of course, you know, in any point in time, in in um, social movements of all different kinds there are folks who think that you can change from only from outside and then there are folks who think that you can make changes from the inside by reforming uh, a system or, or an institution he was one of that with his legal training that he could eventually um help to make uh, the nba uh you know more humane institution that had good relations with its players. Um, but of course, he was the only one mm-hmm. in that New York office. And so in some respects, he was still uh, a token um, in that yeah. office who didn't have the kind of collective power with a cohort of folks to begin to really dig in and make change. But I mean, I can only imagine what kinds of conversations he had to hear over the phone and and in Walter Kennedy's Sterling's and then I can't I can't you know Jack Kent Cooks and yeah so how would you characterize uh some of the work he was doing uh one that stands out to me is his interaction with the owners because it was already tough where there was this big divide in America period white and black and then those in positions of power, those with wealth, those without, the employer-employee relationships. So it's all these dynamics and putting, you know, this man in this position to advocate one for the league, one for black men, black people, Mm -hmm. uh, while then still carrying the responsibility of protecting ownership as well. Like what, yeah, he, what were I some of the things he did to help to like do some things that people just haven't heard before or they don't know and, and how he was able to build some of that success? 
Uh, well, so, I mean, it's it's harder to get at that story. Unfortunately, he's no longer around. So a lot of uh, what I was able to piece together came through some interviews that time in the 1970s. One of the things that really struck me um, was how self-aware he was about being between a rock and a hard place. Yeah. Um, and, and so he, you know, he, you could, you could almost hear the tone in his voice when he was on certain radio programs where he was choosing his words carefully. And this was even with black media because uh, black media at that time did have a suspicion of him mm-hmm. as somebody mm-hmm. who was, you know, in, in this, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, this token in this office, was he being used as a kind of face of the Did he have any real power? That's usually what that would have been a question. Yeah, absolutely. Or or was he just a token? So one of the things that he was always being asked was, you know, do you think that you got this job just because you're black? I mean, come on. Mm -hmm. (laughs) This question and he would always have to preface it by saying, look, you know, like, here are my qualifications. You know, and so it almost made him have to defend a politics of meritocracy, um, whereby he was saying, look, I have all of these qualifications. Clearly, you know, people respect me in the office and I don't take things lying down. And so he was always trying to, you know, prove his credibility. And, and that was the burden of being black in a, you know, a lily white office. Um, And I think the most tragic thing is that many folks outside of the NBA office really believed that he was the heir apparent to Walter Kennedy. And when he got bypassed and they hired, um, you know, he- Can you repeat who they hired? Cause you've been going a tiny bit in and out here and there. Oh, and sometimes sure. on keywords, you, we don't hear the word, but that one, I want people to, the audience to sure, hear. Sure, yeah, Lawrence, uh, Lawrence O'Brien. So yep. Larry O'Brien, who- um, The predecessor became... before uh, David Stern. Yes, uh, he, he was um, eventually chosen as commissioner. And, you know, there were calls for boycott of the league um, from certain sectors of the black fan base. There were players who were saying that they didn't understand why he didn't get the position, but they did, of course, because it was racism. Um, So I think that he, he felt that burden of having that position of being the one black face in a sea of white faces in that front, uh, the NBA's top office. Um, And the fact that he was able to actually, you know, maintain a good relationship with the players and keep the line of communication open during a period of a lot of um, strife, Mm -hmm. it was a credit to his ability and his likability. everyone said that he was a likable guy he was charismatic he Mm -hmm. was somebody who knew his stuff um but you know he was always somebody who was operating in the background um while walter kennedy and others uh, got Uh all the credit credit, basically when you look at the landscape of 
MBA executiveship now and, you know, since um, Simon Gradine and, you know, like in the possibilities of the future, like, what do you see? Oh, geez. I mean, that's anybody's guess. I'm the historian. I look backwards, not necessarily always. Oh, I'm with you on that. I was, just, I was curious from your historian perspective, like, are you encouraged by what you see? Do you, you know, is, is there an encouragement that more change? Because I feel like the NBA still has, you know, like you have Black or, you know, like people of color in the key positions. I'm the most star, of course, in Charlotte, where there's a Black owner, and he has the most in terms of Blacks in executive positions. But when he sells the team, what happens then, right? So, you know, like, um, I'm encouraged by Masai Ujiri and the respect that Masai has. It's not just that he holds the position, it's that he does have the power, and he has the respect of the position as well. So that's encouraging. I was wondering, like, how you felt about those things. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's always this question between um, is changing the demographics of leadership in the league going to change the fact that this is at the end of the day, I think is you said earlier it's a capitalist enterprise it's a for-profit corporation yes. so that's not going to change that dynamic mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. owners versus laborers that's that is still going to be there no matter whether or not you have white faces as the team owner or mm-hmm. you know black faces in the front offices all the way up the chain to owner i do think that Um, especially in terms of um, what I saw from my research in the 70s, you could see that uh, Black coaches like Mm -hmm. adults brought in a different style of communicating with the players that respected them as individuals, as holistic Mm -hmm. people, as not just pieces of meat out there to put on a show. And so in that sense, I think that having more folks who understand, um, you know, players, particularly black players as full human beings who deserve respect, who deserve um, to have their contracts honored, who deserve, you know, ethical leadership. Absolutely, um, you know, making sure that you have a more diverse, leadership in an organization matters um but it's also this question of is that creating complete systemic change not necessarily i think that there's nothing to say that the nba a progressive institution i think a lot of folks have kind of bought into this idea because it has become in comparison to some of the other leagues like the NFL seemingly more progressive mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. but then how high is that bar not very not very high if that's if you, your point of comparison is is the NFL um but i think out of any of the leagues definitely the thing that makes the most difference for the NBA is the power of the players. I think uh, if you have disempowered players, you will always have bad management. I just, 
So if we focus on making sure that the folks who make the game, and I think a lot of times we forget that, we think of, you know, league officials or team owners or coaches or GMs as making the game. No, the folks who make the game are the players at the end of the day. So if if they don't have the amount of leverage or power or protection that affords them uh, a voice in how the game is played and what the trajectory of their careers are, it doesn't matter who you have in the leadership position. It's just not going to be a good situation for those who are putting their bodies on the line to entertain all of us. Right. right. Now, one of the things I'm thinking about, and I just have, we just have a few more questions and we'll let you go. Sure. I'm thinking about the Milwaukee Bucks back in the 70s and what they did with Wally, um, Wally Jones. And while I consider myself a quote unquote historian, this was something that was new for me, like the Wally Jones, um, how he was treated by the Milwaukee Bucks, you know, like um, being put on a medical, you know, getting this medical, you know, like where he was suspended for medical, quote unquote, medical reasons. They were suspecting drugs or something. And then eventually- Well, they didn't even say, this is the thing. They didn't even say it was drugs. They just left it, they left it open. <laughs> and of course, being that it's the early seventies, people just jumped They to left conclusions. a coincidence about yeah, yeah, they, they, not a way he lost or, or it was just, it was yeah, very yeah. shady, ruining this yeah. man's reputation. Right. Um, and then they, re then they decide to put him on, then, you know, they put him on waivers after, you know what I mean? Like, and he's not picked up by another team. Um, well, after you sullied his reputation, why would another team pick up his contract? Right. Um, another version of blackballing, right? Another version of blackballing. <laughs> I was like, yeah. this is horrible. Play yeah. The NBA PA would never put up with that now. Like, I'm complaining about the NBA PA because the things that leaked about the new deal that no one has seen the full deal yet. But they wouldn't put up with a player going through that, like in um, during the season. The Wally G, that Wally Jones, and he was very, very pro-black and doing a lot of things um, in the black community as well. He still continued to do that work after mm -hmm. this case. He's still and, doing it now, <laughs> and that's amazing to me. Yeah. That's it. But yeah. your book introduced. Um, Wally Jones to me, and it was, and, and what the, and you look at the Milwaukee Bucks now, that's Giannis's team, you know what I mean? Like, so it's just, it's just interesting how far um, the NBA has come. Um, did you have a question before I went into my final question? No, no, um, I was intrigued because one of the obsessions I have is limb bias. And I read that, yeah. <laughs> I read that the one, you know, like the limb, you know, you researching limb bias mm -hmm. is what- That's actually me. where I started. That's yeah. where you started. That's where and I started. I was intrigued. Do you possibly have something coming on limb bias? Um, or, you know, is possibly. something circulating? I, I... So that was the original project because I'm I'm at the time when I started initially just delving into um, this era, 
I started with Len Bias because I, you know, I'm at American University. College Park is, mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. down the road. And so, you know, I went to uh, look through their Len Bias collection. And of course, they pulled me aside and they were like, why are you looking at this? You know, what, are, what are you planning to do? They wanted to know. Really? <laughs> it's still a touchy subject. Wow. It's still, you know, it 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 was an embarrassment to the University yes. of Maryland um, on on a number of levels. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I I had thought originally I was going to do this project, which was kind of like a micro history of the war on drugs and yes. um, and, and also to uh, a lot of the ways in which discussions about black quote-unquote student athletes at that time really intersected with these conversations about black male criminality in the same mm-hmm. period and he in became, mass incarceration yeah right, in mass, and he became yeah. the kind of figure that stood in for you know the imagined problem um and so of course you know, probably know who Len Bias is, but he got drafted by the Boston mm-hmm. Celtics yeah. um, in the NBA draft in 1986, shortly yeah. thereafter, dies of cocaine intoxication, um, and his career was, it was done. And a few months after, uh, Ronald Reagan, you know, invokes the image of Len Bias when he is announcing his uh, omnibus drug bill, the Anti-Drug Act of of 1986, which brought in an increasingly punitive regime in Mm -hmm. the war on drugs. And so I was just really curious as to why, you know, what, what about him as a young black man, a basketball player, was so obvious to folks at that time for him to come to be the stand-in for all of these social ills. So I want to happen. And so I started digging back and I found the story of Wally Jones and I found the story of Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Lucius Allen getting pulled over, you know, and, and the constant reports of black criminality in the mainstream media um, and and how these guys were being painted in such a way so as to make the connection between criminality and the black athlete to be a kind of common sense for the public at large. Um, So that's actually how the Len Bias stuff informed this project. Now the question is, am I going to go back to 1986 and complete the stuff that I had started then? Just the next decade. (laughs) Maybe I need to do that. Yeah, it's it's definitely, it's one of those stories where it became so much bigger than just the individual. It, it it, It came to speak for so many uh conversations about race inequality policing incarceration the intersection of all of those things um just through this tragedy of this one one you know this one unfortunate incident um so i I mean i do have an article on it I think it's one person that can do it justice into weaving because when you talk about Lynn Bias, it's not just what could have been the battle between him and Jordan from in right. basketball circles. 
but he was already doing drugs. So, and Jordan wasn't doing, you know, he wasn't drinking like that yet. So you think about how they were taking care of their bodies. Who knows what they would have became, unfortunately. And But it's the potential of what could have been Lim Bias versus Jordan in the basketball circles, like a, his real rivalry in the 80s. That could have been something. Um, mm-hmm. But at the same time, when you talk about Lim Bias, it's the tragedy of, of what occurred for his family. What mm-hmm. you look at Lim Bias and what happened with his family, and if people were to look into that, they'll know what I'm talking about. And to look at the impact on mass incarceration and in in just especially in Maryland, like how the Maryland politicians just ran to DC, just you know, and ran to get something done. Um, it's I think you're the writer that can interweave all of that in a way that it's digestible. So when I when I saw <laughs> that bias was a spark, I was like, uh, I hope so. I hope she can because <laughs> um, you know that's the next decade. Because you know when 78, 79, you have Magic and Larry coming in. But I feel like Magic and Larry hasn't been talking. You know, nobody talks about Dr. J being one of those people that held the lead together before Magic and um, Magic and Bird came. Like I think there was, you know, there's other links there before Magic and Bird. I think they were pivotal, but I think the stage was being set for them and you helped set the stage for what was going on in the 70s that led to the boom of the 80s. Um, So I thank you for being with us. Really enjoyed this conversation with you. Um, Love the book. And um, yeah, next is the big O for me. And I'm an ABA this, you know, person studying ABA as well. So this book um, provided some really cool details. Um, and uh, yeah, any any message you would like to leave for people uh, before we um, get out of here? I mean, uh, this work was really a labor of love and I really tried to tell the story from the perspective of the players and really deconstruct a lot of the BS (laughs) that they were facing at that time to provide a much more holistic picture of of what it meant to be a professional basketball player in that time and I think sometimes we we just get enamored by the things that happen on the court and we forget that these Mm -hmm. are just regular folks with an immense amount of talent (laughs) you know in playing ball but they're also, you know, just complex human beings like the rest of us. So I'm, I'm hoping that that uh, definitely came through in the book. Well, I, Cynthia, I, I, I have enjoyed it a lot. Uh, if it's not Lim Bias, can you give us a little insight? What are you working on next? What's big? What's top of mind for you? Oh my gosh. You know, uh, I've been told by my husband that I must take a break this summer. I'm not allowed to start any new projects. Um, The Len Bias thing has been there for a while. So I've I've still got my database of all the articles (laughs) about um, his story and a lot of the records from the University of Maryland. There's some other folks who I think deserve some... um, 
research from the early 20th century. I think my, my comfort zone is actually in the early 20th century, believe it or okay. not. Um, so uh, somebody like Ora Washington, who was the first really uh, black female sports superstar in uh, the United States. Um, she's somebody who I think there investigations some, uh, some more writing on. You know, I, I've been looking and I don't know if there's a really, really good history of the Harlem Wrens. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and that, that, you know. I saw a book actually, on the Black Fives that I, that I, that I yeah, actually yeah. picked up. Yeah, so I have that book as well. So the, the period right after the Black Fives, um, that's another sort of moment where we, we know a little bit about them, but we don't really know a ton about how basketball worked um, during that period. So, you know, we'll see. But I've been told I must I must take a vacation. I understand because <laughs> this was a this had to be a labor of love and take so much time. The thoroughness of the research is extremely impressive. Um, I'm also looking for, and I was going to, I'm going to message you separately, the best books to research the Harlem Globetrotters, because I hear mixed things about the ha Harlem Globetrotters. So I'll message you, Teresa Runstetler is on Twitter. So, what's <laughs> 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 there? Yes, I am. Uh, I'm at Dr. T.R. Runstetler. Um, you know, if you, if you attempt to type it in as it sounds, you'll probably find me. I'm also uh, at sport, sporty.prof on uh, Instagram with the other, you know, middle-aged ladies on Instagram and Facebook as well. Um, so I, I'm always uh, happy to connect with folks. I also have a personal website, uh, Teresa dash runstudler.com um and you know i've been getting all sorts of messages from folks and it's it's always a pleasure to see how the book and the work is resonating with folks i'm even going to read you i'm going to read the jack johnson book um oh, please do. I'm it's... yeah i'm gonna read that one because that was the one she had but if you're a boxing buff that's the one she had before this one so i will be checking that out but we really thank you. We'll have the full, we'll have your deeds and make sure they have the spelling so they can find you. <laughs> I know. Um, it's like, why didn't I change my name when I got married? Kept <laughs> 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 that German so, name. I appreciate you for taking the time to spend with us. And um, you have a really good evening. Thank Thanks. you. Thanks. Right, you thank too. You. All right. Thank you.